Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Abby Phillip, and this is CNN Tonight. It is the tale of two tapes. Special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into alleged interference in the 2020 election heating up today. Investigators interviewing Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Former President Donald Trump famously called him in January of 2021, pressing him to find votes that Trump needed to win the state of Georgia, a state that Joe Biden won by nearly 12,000 votes. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So where is the special counsel's January 6th investigation headed? We'll discuss that. And he's already indicted President Trump in the Mar-a-Lago case, while Trump and his allies keep changing their explanations about that audio recording that CNN exclusively obtained, where Trump is on there discussing what seems and seems to wave around classified documents. So this is what he said about it before CNN got the exclusive tape. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. And then on Monday, CNN actually obtained the audio itself. Here's what he said. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Mm. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Mm. Wait a minute, let's see here. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Except it is like highly confidential, secret. This is secret information. Speaking to Fox News Digital yesterday, Trump insists that he did nothing wrong and he claims that he did not see that recording. But he also says, quote, you hear the rustle of the paper. The former president also saying that he had a whole desk full of papers, including copies of different plans and news articles covering many, many subjects. So where exactly are those plans? Well, a Trump campaign spokesperson told CNN's Kristen Holmes that he was actually referring to political plans. But then Trump himself later told reporters this. He said, did I use the word plans? What I'm referring to is magazine newspapers, plans of buildings. I had plans of buildings, you know, building plans. I had a lot of golf courses, plans for golf courses. 
So I want to start now with CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed, as well as CNN senior political analyst Gloria Borger. So, Paula, start with you. Brad Raffensperger coming in to be interviewed today by the special counsel seems pretty significant, especially coming after we found out that Rudy Giuliani was also questioned. Uh, What does that tell us tonight about the state of the investigation? Well, Abby, those two interviews, along with the rest of our reporting, certainly suggests that they could be nearing a charging decision. We have seen an uptick in activity in recent weeks. And look, with Giuliani, we don't know specifically what he was asked about, but we do know that he was subpoenaed for information about payments and money he received around the time that he was filing on those legal challenges uh, against the 2020 election. But Abby, that subpoena, that was sent over six months ago. And then once Jack Smith took over the investigation, Giuliani didn't hear a word until recent weeks. And that raises questions about whether he could be a target, because usually uh, if you are contacted this late in an investigation, it suggests that you may not just be a witness, you could also be at risk for possible charges. This point is unclear if he'll be charged. And yeah, with Raffensperger, an incredibly key witness, certainly not someone who's expected to be a target, but he can absolutely speak to that conversation in January 2021 that he had with former President Trump, because we know as part of this very expansive investigation, Jack Smith is looking at the pressure that was being applied to states like Georgia to overturn their election results. That's really fascinating what you pointed out there about Giuliani. So, Gloria, uh, on President Trump, I mean, he is still lashing out against his most recent indictment. But there is this real prospect of another indictment potentially dropping over his involvement in January 6th. How concerned should he be about this one? I think he should be concerned uh, about all of them. I mean, I think the question, and I'm not quite sure how Jack Smith is going to work it out with Fonnie Willis in uh, in Georgia, who's also investigating uh, the question of false electors. But I, I think he needs to be worried about all of them. I, the, the question is, what did the president know about these false electors? Uh, did he order them? Uh, we don't we don't know the answer to those questions, but we do know that Jack Smith pursued the Mar-a-Lago case first, the documents case that may perhaps be because it's a little more clear cut. And then now clearly is moving on to this question of rigging the election and perhaps even the insurrection. So if I were uh, the former president of the United States and I saw these things piling up, I'd be yes. I'd be really concerned about it, even though, and you know this, Abby, even though his poll numbers uh, are going up, it becomes the wallpaper of the campaign. And it is going to be about what what some of the other candidates, like Chris Christie, we just heard, who was on with Caitlin, are going to be talking about. It will be in the ether. And more and more people may start asking themselves the questions about whether they want someone with this kind of baggage. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be something that he has to contend with. Uh, Paula, I I do want to ask you about Trump's response to that CNN exclusive audio recording where he's there, as we played earlier, talking about these classified documents. What is he saying tonight? Well, now he is saying that this was just all bravado. And Abby has a fact check. I don't think that is untrue, but that certainly doesn't absolve you of potential criminal responsibility uh, when you can hear him on the recording saying that he retained government secrets even after he left the White House and admits that he did not have the power to declassify them as he appeared to be trying to share them with a room full of people who didn't have clearances. Let's look at his full statement. Today he said, quote, 
I would say it was bravado. If you want to know the truth, it was bravado. I was talking and just holding up papers and talking about them, but I had no documents. I didn't have any documents. But of course, we know he says in the recording, something that was not included in the indictment, but CNN found in that recording, he says, these are the papers. So look, silence is an option here. He doesn't have to talk about this, but all of this is going to be admissible in court. And now, in order to have the jury believe what he's saying now, he has to convince them that he lied on the recording, right? He was lying to a room full of people. So one way or the other, he's kind of boxed himself in to some serious credibility issues well, before an eventual jury. Imagine and, trying to convince a jury that you're a liar and that's a good thing for you. Well, I mean, because, what about the American people, Gloria? I mean, to your point, we, we just laid out all of the different versions of the explanations here. I mean, there's a jury who needs to buy that, but also American voters would need to buy that. What do you think? Well, I think, look, I think there's a base of people who are going to support Donald Trump no matter what. They're going to think it's a hoax. They're going to think it's a weaponized Justice Department. And we've we've heard all of that, including from uh, many Republican members of Congress. I think as you go down the road here and you start seeing the president, particularly in his own words, and then you see a president dissembling, people are going to start scratching their heads and say, you know, even if I liked Donald Trump, maybe I don't want to go through this again. Maybe I have had enough of this. And that's what we're hearing among Republican voters. I would not say that it's a crescendo. I would say that he is very, very far ahead in the polls, but it's early. It's not late. And I think you have someone like Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson taking on uh, the former president directly. And I think that uh, that's going to have an impact. Well, we will find out uh, soon enough. Gloria and Paula, thank you both very much. I want to now turn to conservative lawyer George Conway. Uh, George, thank you for joining us here tonight. Uh, We were just discussing this issue of whether Trump's explanations are believable. I want to play here what former Governor Chris Christie had to say about that. He's getting cornered and he'll lie about anything. I think the latest lie um, is the one that he said um, just yesterday, right, where he said, I wasn't really showing him anything. It was just bravado. bravado. He was essentially saying he was lying to the people he was sitting with, Mark Meadows, biographers, and his own staff. But let me tell you something. That's what he does. He admitted he had the documents. He knew about the grand jury subpoena, but he was too busy to go through the boxes to see what was classified and what wasn't. And he didn't want to just turn the boxes over because he had golf shirts and golf pants in there. I mean, come on. There's nobody in America who believes that story. So, George, I assume all these public statements are potentially admissible in court. They're all How much do they matter? They matter a lot because he, he's lying about everything. I mean, we all know we've had experiences when, you know, people have been caught with their hands in the cookie jar and dealing with people who are telling lies and making up stories. Nothing like this. He's just not very good at it. But he is a pathological liar. He will say anything that comes to his head at a given moment to convince somebody that, you know, to, to divert attention and to convince somebody that some accusation against him is untrue. But the problem is the, he has no 
defense. He has, we've been watching this now since last August, and they have yet to come up with a coherent factual or legal defense to these charges. And the the reason is, is because he did it. He did it and it was illegal. And there is, you know, there is just no argument that he has. And that's why you see him cycling and flailing about and, and going from uh, you know, saying that, oh, the FBI planted the documents. We don't know if they really did the documents. I was entitled to the documents. I didn't have any documents. Uh, he literally, literally there's, there is no lie that he, I don't think, I, don't, I think he's run out of lies. With the last one, when he's saying that these were plans for a golf course or something like that, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess the Pentagon does own some golf courses somewhere, but yeah, he's, it's ridiculous. I mean, well, that's we, not what he was we, talking about, and we, we heard will, the tape. We will find out if there are more explanations to come yeah. for sure. But on the special counsel investigation into January 6th, what does it say to you that Brad Raffensperger was brought in to testify <clears throat> today? Well, yeah, again, I think Georgia is going to be one threat. It's a very complicated case, which is why I think, as Gloria just pointed out a couple of minutes ago, it's why I think the special counsel proceeded with the documents case, which is just a single timeline, whereas is is multiple timelines of people doing various things and Trump being involved basically everywhere, trying to um, get the vice president to violate the law, trying to persuade, to create slates of, of, of fake electors trying to persuade um, uh, the Secretary of State in, in, in Georgia, Raffensperger, and people in Michigan and other states to try to, and the litigation. It's just very, very complex. But, you know, the Raffensperger thing is really significant because, you know, there's the tape. And you putting him, putting Raffensperger on to explain the context of how the tape uh, came about um, is, 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 is very, very important. And when Do you, you think- combine, yes. Do you think the tape alone, though, is enough to substantiate some kind of charge here when it comes to Trump? I I don't know that it's enough, but you have to remember, I mean, it's pretty significant. I mean, he's basically asking for one more vote than he needs to win the election. I mean, he's not asking for an actual count. It's not a legitimate count. He's just basically asking somebody to fix the results. And but, you know, when you but you have to view that in the context of all the evidence that we've seen so far that came out, especially during the January 6th committee hearings in the House and how basically everybody told him. Uh, everybody who had any sense, lawyers, uh, lawyers in the, in, the, in the government, lawyers outside the government, his own attorney general, his own staff, and, 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 and everybody was telling him, you lost, buddy, you lost. Right. And, and so that's, pushing, that's the context. He right. was pushing all of this anyway. So, George, also today, I mean, if there weren't enough legal dealings having to do with former President Trump, uh, he is countersuing. It's only going to be more writer E. Jean Carroll for yeah. defamation after a jury found that he was liable for sexual assault and that he defamed her. So it's important to point out here that Carroll testified that uh, a conversation with you in 2019 led her to seriously consider suing Trump. But do you think that Trump has a case here, a counter case to sue her for defamation? It is the most ridiculous thing I mean, and we've seen so much that's ridiculous. This is one of the more ridiculous things we've ever seen. Because the fact of the matter is, the jury found that he sexually, her, sexually molested um, Gene. And that, you know, whether, you, whether it's technically rape under New York law or not, 
which is, you know, it would be rape in many other states, what the jury found that she did. And, they didn't, and the jury didn't, what well, he did, but the jury didn't find that she, that she, she was not raped. They just simply said, we find that he, it was, and it was sufficient for purposes of, 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 of the verdict that they, that, they, that they find that she was sexually molested. Um, in, in, a, in a very, very, almost un, in an unspeakable fashion. So it, it's completely, any libel case that he seeks to bring on the, on, on, based upon the proposition that he didn't commit technical rape under New York law um, is just, it's just ridiculous. And I think what we're going to see is Alina Haba, who filed this thing, Joe Tacopina didn't dare file this, I think she's going to get sanctioned like she did in Florida when, by the judge in Florida in that case involving the DNC. It's interesting. So we'll be watching that as well, George Conway. Thank you, as always. Thank you. And just ahead, fallout from the rebellion in Russia. Serious questions tonight about a top Russian general's whereabouts amid reports that he knew about that planned insurrection. Questions mounting tonight about the whereabouts of Russia's former top commander in Ukraine, Sergei Surovikin, who reportedly has not been seen since Friday. Now, it comes as The New York Times is reporting that Surovikin may have had advanced knowledge of the Wagner boss's plans to rebel against Russia's military leadership. I want to bring in now former Defense Secretary William Cohen. So, Secretary Cohen, what do you think is going on with Sergei Surovikin? And do you believe that he might have been aware? of this uh, attempted insurrection? Well, Abby, thanks for having me on this evening. Uh, We are really in the land of speculation uh, at this particular point because we really don't know. Uh, What I think uh, we're seeing is the longer he stays out of the public eye, the longer uh, it is before he comes home to his wife who said that he uh, had not come home from work yet. So a long day at the office uh, for the past week. Um, but the longer he's away, the more suspicion and speculation is going to be that he represents more than just one individual, but there are other military men uh, who share the same view about the war as Prigozhin did. So I, I think uh, that's going to raise the level of anxiety that, that President Putin has got to have his neck on a swivel, turning around and around 360 degrees, saying, who is with me, who's against me? And he basically is walking down in the Kremlin a hall of mirrors. How do you determine reflection from reality? And um, again, who's a patriot, who's a traitor? And right now, he's got to be very suspicious of the people of his closest advisory team, both the government and also the military. Yeah, no question about that, uh, because just the mere fact that Prigozhin could have gotten this far uh, is an indication that something was amiss in the Kremlin. But as you pointed out, Putin is trying now to double down on his support. He put out this video today uh, of him being surrounded, almost accosted, by cheering supporters. It's just one of multiple appearances that he has made uh, since the rebellion. Uh, Few of them, I should say, are live. So what message is he trying to send here? He's trying to uh, replicate what Prigozhin uh, was doing uh, in, in southern uh, uh, Russia uh, on the border between that and Ukraine, that he's getting a hero's welcome. He couldn't have that take place without a response. So he's showing he's a man of the people. He's out there. He represents the people. The rebellion or the mutiny has been quelled, and he's back in charge, uh, and they should rest assured that uh, there's not going to be disorder prevailing. Stability is key uh, to the, the Russian psyche. and. Uh, 
what he's trying to do is saying everything is okay, the bad guys have been put down, and uh, I'm still in charge. Yeah, I mean, he is doing this in part because the reception that Prigozhin got, as you pointed out, seemed to suggest a lot of popular support, maybe nascent popular support for opposition. Do you think that there's evidence, even after Putin has come out, still in charge after this weekend, that he might be losing his grip on Russia in the way that some are suggesting? I think he has two problems. On the one hand, Prigozhin is saying, look, you gave me billions, but I want bullets. Uh, I've got the two billion or three billion dollars you gave me to help wage this war, uh, and but I need bullets and you're not giving them to me. So there was a rage there, saying I'm in the front lines with my troops. They're fighting and dying, and you're not giving me what uh, you need to give me to help win this war. That's one aspect where the soldiers on the ground were supporting Prigozhin, and I believe that some in Moscow in the military were also supporting him, saying we've got to do more to win this war against the Ukrainians. The second part of it is there are those I believe in the Russian government who actually agree with what Prigozhin was saying. This is, a, uh, this is an unjust uh, war that you are waging. And he called Putin a liar, basically saying you lied to the Russian people and to the world. This was not something that was a threat to you. Ukraine was not thinking of advancing against you. So you have put Russia in the crosshairs of the international community with all of the sanctions. And so we are now pariahs in many parts of the world. And we're not gaining here on the battlefield. So he has people in his government questioning legitimacy of still being in Ukraine. At the same time, his military is saying, you're not doing enough. So he's in a real box right now. He's got to show I'm still in charge. I don't think he can afford to take any action that uh, cuts the heads off a number of people right away. But those people who were involved in the planning and the support for Prigozhin, uh, I think they will eventually be, um, be missing in action, as will Prigozhin. And that message that you pointed out about the war being an ill-fated war, that coming from inside of Russia means the Russian people probably heard it, maybe some of them, for the very first time. It's really significant what you just said there. Secretary William Cohen, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Good to be with you. Thank you. And coming up next, President Biden embracing a new catchphrase about the state of the economy as he runs for re-election in 2024. It's called Bidenomics, and we'll break down what it means with one of the president's top economic advisors next. President Biden giving a major speech on the economy and making the pitch to voters that the United States is heading in the right direction. He's embracing the term Bidenomics, which is a play on Reaganomics, the president trying to claim credit for an economy where some indicators are trending in the right direction, although public optimism remains low. Biden is aiming this message squarely at the middle class. Bidenomics is about the future. Biden is just another way of saying, restore the American dream. When we invest in our people, we strengthen the middle class, we see the economy grow, that benefits all Americans. That's the American dream. Forty years of trickle-down limited that dream, for those, except for those at the top. 
And joining me now is Jared Bernstein, the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Jared, thank you for joining us. So I want to start with this. Gallup today released their Economic Confidence Index, and it shows that Americans are actually feeling slightly better. That number is ticking up there at the end. But at the same time, they do remain overall pessimistic. A new AP poll shows 64 percent of Americans disapprove of President Biden's handling of this economy. I wonder, is Bidenomics a rebrand that is trying to change these overall economic approval ratings? Not so much that as a description of uh, an economic theory on one hand and very much a theory that's in practice on the other hand. That is, Bidenomics is uh, already in our economy generating some of those positive indicators that you mentioned in your introduction. Look, we're talking about building this economy, growing this economy from uh, the middle out and the bottom up uh, and, and doing so on three pillars, Abby finally reversing decades of disinvestment in this uh, country that was a a symptom of of trickle-down economics, this idea that if you just cut taxes for the wealthy, somehow that's going to uplift the middle class. As the president just said, there are decades of evidence to the contrary. So finally making smart investments in our public sector that crowd in private investments uh, from uh, from investors uh, here at home. Empowering and educating our workforce and uh, promoting greater competition, both to lower costs, very important for consumers right now, to continue the progress we've made on it, uh, on inflation. Real progress, more work to do there, uh, as well as giving small businesses a, a fighting chance in a world where there's been under trickle down too much concentration in some key industries. So, so you are a numbers guy, so I'm going to throw one more at you. Uh, the AP had a poll out that found that only 47% of Democrats, that's your party, think that the economy is doing well. I wonder, what, what do you think is behind that? Why is it that so few of the president's own supporters, presumptively, have such low confidence in this issue? Well, I think if you ask people about the components of Bidenomics or some of the specifics about the current economy, you actually get pretty different numbers. So we know, for example, uh, that people's job satisfaction is at a 36-year high. And again, pillar two, Bidenomics, a, uh, a an empowered an educated workforce. Now, we have an unemployment rate that's been below 4% for a year and a half in this country, and that's provided disproportionate opportunities to communities uh, of color, to people who are often left behind uh, in, uh, in, in trickle-down uh, economies. So th- that's one uh, a poll number that I think is, is, is quite important. If you then drill down further and ask people about the specifics of Bidenomics, you ask them about how they feel about infrastructure investment, about lower costs for prescription drugs, for insulin, about broadband. The president announced a $42 billion investment in affordable rural broadband in this country because we know, Abby, that uh, having access to high-speed internet is like economic oxygen regardless of your address. Those numbers poll, those those projects poll in the 70, 75 percent range. So when you actually drill down and ask people about the granular aspects of what we're trying to do in Bidenomics, uh, we are starting to break through uh, with, I think, uh, more receptivity. So one of the components of what you're discussing here, the kind of disconnect that we might be seeing, you have people who may have jobs, but while inflation is trending down, uh, it's still there. It's still Mm -hmm. making them unable to afford as much as they would like to afford. 
that's that's still a factor in the economy. So what is the White House doing about that? Uh, yeah, it, it, the the uh, as you say, inflation uh, about a year ago it was nine percent year over year. It's come down by more than half. So uh, last seen at around four percent. But you're right. Uh, we've got more work to do, and we have components of Bidenomics that uh, 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 can t- that push on that trend to keep it moving in the right direction. So one of the things the president talked about is promoting competition to lower costs. How do we do that? Uh, well, w- one of the things uh, he he's been working. Working on is getting rid of junk fees. Uh, another is to uh, save consumers uh, over five billion dollars a year when it comes to overdraft fees. Helping small businesses come online, increasing the economy's capacity, getting the uh, FTC back in the business of promoting competition in industri- industries where there's not enough of that. Uh, at, at the same yeah. time, one of the things we're starting to see now, and this is a, this is key to your question. One of the things we're starting to see now are real wage gains. Uh, since uh, si- since the last nine or ten months, we finally seen wages beating inflation, but by uh, uh, by by small amounts. Now we we have to build on that as inflation comes down, the job market remains uh, solid. I do want to point out that you you talked about a lot of things to reduce costs you know, the relatively small things, but a lot of the big costs are food, you know, housing. These are big things mm. that take up a big chunk of people's paychecks. One last thing, we only have a few seconds, Jared, but do you believe that there's sure. a chance here in this next year of an economic recession? Well, first of all, let me just address, I know we have a few seconds, but it is really important to recognize that grocery costs have actually been coming down at, at a pretty fast clip. And not just inflation, but actually the price, the price of eggs is basically back down to where it was a year ago. In terms of recession, look, if you look around where this economy is right now, uh, the indicators that we use to gauge a recession, they're just not flashing anything like a recession. Tight job market, strong consumer. I told you about some real wage gains that we're starting to see and Bidenomic investment plans that uh, uh, intend to keep that momentum going. So we, we like the kind of momentum we see. We think it's very complimentary to the announcements the president made today. All right, Jared Bernstein, thank you very much for joining us here tonight. And just ahead, debris from the destroyed Titan submersible brought, uh, brought to shore, along with what is believed to be human remains. We will talk to a deep sea expert on here uh, on where that investigation goes from here. The U.S. Coast Guard says that they've recovered what they call presumed human remains from the seafloor of the Titan site. And it comes on the same day that huge pieces of that doomed Titan submersible were unloaded onto a Canadian pier. And it's been nearly a week since authorities confirmed the tragic implosion of that sub with five people on board. The debris will now be headed to investigators who will try to uncover more about how this disaster unfolded. Joining me now is Deep Sea Explorer and oceanographer David Gallo. David, thank you for joining us again here. This is grim news here from the Coast Guard. How will investigators now use what they've found to put together the picture of what actually went wrong here with this sub? Well, it'll be very similar to an air traffic, an air crash uh, study investigation. Uh, and one way we like to think about it is to uh, treat it as a crime scene. So with robots, cameras, lasers, LIDAR, make a complete map of that site on the bottom of the ocean because it's not very easily accessible. So you want to be able to take that 
back to the laboratory to the forensic experts. Second part, of course, is to choose which to pick, what to pick and what not to pick. Uh, Pelagica and the Coast Guard have done an incredible job, in my my opinion, uh, in such a short time. You saw very big pieces, obviously, in those images, but they probably were also picking up things as tiny as a, a memory card, a chip, uh, because who knows what's on that. So it's, uh, there's probably an awful lot of bits and pieces that are going to have to be analyzed. And I'm not sure there are four countries involved where that will be. I'm guessing it will be in, 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 in the U.S., but I don't know that for sure. Yeah, it's interesting to see how large those pieces were. Um, you know, when people hear about a, an explosion, they know what to expect. But when we talk about an implosion, uh, what kind of evidence really is left there from the inside of that sub? Uh, I would have guessed not a lot. I thought, uh, including human remains, I thought everything would be pretty well vaporized because normally what we think about is uh, a sphere that you're in a capsule and then it collapses inwards, uh, which generates incredible amount of heat that explodes outwards. In this case, it's a tube. So if you collapse the inside of the tube, you may push things out uh, out the sides and the front and the back. And what you're looking at there, uh, that ring, and earlier it was the nose cone where the portal would be. Uh, so, and I see plenty of uh, uh, wiring and things like that. So there probably is an awful lot there for them to go on, rather than just uh, uh, tiny, tiny bits of fragments. Yeah, and you see all heard, these there. Yeah, your uh, wire cables and yeah. Yeah, that's that is really interesting to look at that photo where you see the basically, I mean, the wiring very much intact, which is a little surprising to see. So, so David, I mean, look, as we go forward here, there's going to be a question of what went wrong, but then also how does this never happen again? What safety changes do you want to see going forward uh, to prevent something like this from happening? That's a great question, Abby. And, you know, this is something that we always knew could happen in the business. For 40 years, we expected that something like this could happen. And uh, here it finally did happen, and we're all kind of surprised by it. Um, uh, you know, so so committees will start taking a very close look at the entire process. Was the design proper? proper? Was the uh, operations, the, the techniques, was all that proper? properly done, and then they'll start refining it. Uh, I, I'm assuming it's going to take quite a bit of time uh, to get that uh, taken care of. But you know what? You, you could have all the certificates on the planet. You can have a stamp of approval from the Pope. That doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a safe trip to the bottom. It just try, The thing you want to do is minimize risk. There's always I, risk. You want to try to min, minimize it. And that the ocean, as many people have said to us, is an incredibly, the deep sea, an incredibly unforgiving place. Uh, David Gallo, thank you very much for joining us, as always. Okay, just you. ahead for us, a major health scare for a pop legend, Madonna. She developed a serious bacterial infection, which sent her to the ICU for a few days. We'll have the latest on her condition coming up next. A major health scare for Madonna. The pop legend's manager released a statement saying that on Saturday, June 24th, Madonna developed a serious bacterial infection, which led to a several-day stay in the ICU. Her health is improving. However, she is still under medical care. A full recovery is expected. And a source is now saying that she is out of the ICU, but the situation forcing Madonna, who is 64 years old, to postpone her latest tour, which was set to kick off next 
next month. And joining me now is CNN medical analyst, Dr. Jorge Rodriguez. He's an internal medicine and viral specialist. So, Dr. Rodriguez, uh, this was really stunning, I think, probably to a lot of people. Uh, The ICU is very serious, but the ICU for several days. What does that tell you? What do you think happened here? Well, Abby, um, I think, first of all, I also heard reports that she had been intubated, which meant that she had a tube in her mouth to her lungs breathing for her. So that in and of itself is very serious. You just don't do that as a precautionary measure. So that tells me that Madonna had probably a very disseminated infection. It could have been a pneumonia, which is an infection of the lungs, which caused her not to be able to breathe. And either when they called the paramedics, and I hope they did, or when she got to the emergency room, they immediately started breathing for her and intubating her. Again, that's supposition because we know very little. The fact that she was in the ICU and they've already identified this as a bacterial infection also leads me to believe that she may have been septic, which means that some sort of bacterial infection overwhelmed her bloodstream and also lowered her blood pressure, maybe even, you know, just stopped her breathing temporarily or or slowed it down. So yes, it sounds like it was very and still could be very serious. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't know a whole lot about her medical history, but we do know that she previously underwent a hip replacement surgery back in 2020 due to an injury during yeah. her last tour. So what kind of role could that play in her health right now? Well, that, that could play a big role. And, and that's this is coming from someone who he himself, me, had an artificial knee put in um, a couple of years ago. If you don't have any foreign body in your in your in your body, meaning if you don't have any metal Usually your body's own tissue fights off a bacterial infection. However, if you have some inanimate substance in your body, there's no tissue with white blood cells to fight off infection. So a titanium hip, a titanium knee, even an artificial valve in your heart is, well, it's a playground for bacteria because they can just start reproducing there. So the fact that she had probably or maybe a very disseminated bacterial infection. And the fact that she has an artificial hip um, raises uh, the dangerous stakes, I think, considerably in her case. It may have nothing to do with it because she's three years out and usually the danger zone is two years, but it also may, may be what's going on. So again, we don't know. That's, that's a very interesting observation there. So she had this 84 84- uh, performance tour scheduled uh, over the course of about six months across North America, Europe, the United Kingdom. Madonna is also 64 years old. Uh, that, I think, would be ambitious even uh, under the most healthy of circumstances. After experiencing something like this, what do you think uh, are the prospects for that tour? Well, I think, again, we don't know everything, but if they're even mentioning it, this is not a subtle little you know, walking pneumonia. There's something more serious going on here. And probably it's um, a tour that may very well be canceled completely, especially if there's a serious infection. If this infection has gotten into the bones, has gotten into the prosthetic hip, it may take months of continued antibiotics uh, to completely get rid of it. So we'll know hopefully more um, in the next few weeks um, if she dares, you know, or wants to share it, not dares to share it. And obviously, we wish her well, but this could be something very serious. Uh, And the most important thing, obviously, is her health, um, not her tour and and all the exhaustion that comes with it, which would tend to make things worse. And and we do certainly all wish her well. I mean, Madonna is 
a major legend for so many people. Uh, Dr. Jorge Rodriguez, thank you very much for sharing your expertise on all of that. Thank you, Abby. And it is a question that a lot of people are now asking, especially in Silicon Valley. Will tech titans Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg actually get into a ring and fight each other? That's next. It's a matchup for the ages. Silicon Valley heavyweights Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg in hand-to-hand combat. And if you think we're joking, trust me, we are not. Check out these pictures. That is Elon Musk training with podcaster Lex Friedman. Friedman trained in mixed martial arts and says of Musk, and I quote, I'm extremely impressed with his strength, power, and skill on the feet and on the ground. And for those of you who had your money on Zuckerberg, on the other hand, he's a known fighter and somebody who has also trained with Lex Friedman. You might want to reconsider. That is, if the fight even happens, because Elon Musk's mama, May Musk, is checking in, and she says that she is canceling the fight. So I guess we will just have to wait and see if this one even happens. And thank you for joining us tonight. CNN Tonight with Allison Camerata starts right now. Abby, I only have one question. Why? Why are That's, they doing that? That is what Elon Musk's mom wants to, wants to find <laughs> out tonight. Of course she does, <laughs> because they're acting like real housewives from Silicon Valley. That's what they're acting like. So I'm, watch that. I'm with her. Um, All right, Abby, thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Remember when Donald Trump called Georgia's Secretary of State and instructed him to find 11,780 more votes to overturn Joe Biden's election victory? Well, today, Brad Raffensperger, that Georgia official, talked to Jack Smith's investigators. One of Donald Trump's former White House lawyers is here to help explain what that means for Trump and the investigation. And listen to what Republican rival Chris Christie just said about Donald Trump on CNN. He's the consummate show off. And I think that's what that tape was, him showing off. People asked me going all the way back to the time of the raid last year of Mar-a-Lago, like, why would he keep these documents? People were like, is he going to give them to a foreign government or sell them to somebody or blackmail people? Like, you don't understand Donald Trump. It's just a show off. All right. There's a lot more to come from that interview. Plus, how to stop a mass shooting. We're going to show you some incredible newly released body cam video that captures a lone police officer taking down an active shooter. And a major health scare from Madonna. We're told she is out of intensive care tonight and recovering from a life-threatening bacterial infection. She just postponed her world tour. We have more details ahead. But let's begin with special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into January 6th and Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. If you've lost track of all the different investigative threads, Tom Foreman is at the magic wall to catch us up. Tom. Allison, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has publicly said he felt threatened when then-President Trump called asking him to find enough votes to help Trump win in Georgia. And now he has joined a long line of Republicans who have spoken to federal investigators looking into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Among them, 
Rudy Giuliani, once Trump's personal lawyer who was questioned in recent weeks, former Vice President Mike Pence, Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former aide Stephen Miller, former Deputy Chief of Staff and Social Media Director Dan Scavino, former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, and on and on it goes. Suffice to say, it's a lot of Trump insiders being asked what they saw and heard about any effort to undo a legal and fair election. The scope of this probe is also notable for its geography, with investigators asking about possible schemes for fake electors and false claims in Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico. And all of this against the boiling background of the other cases the former president faces, that indictment in Manhattan accusing him of falsifying business records to disguise hush money payments to hide alleged affairs. The indictment in federal court over those classified documents seized at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club and a Georgia County prosecutor's own investigation into alleged attempts by Trump and his allies to steal the election there. For the record, the former president has insisted time and again that he did nothing wrong and many of his team have said they just want to make sure that the election was above board. Allison. Tom, thank you very much for all of that. Let's bring in former Trump White House lawyer Jim Schultz, along with CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers and CNN law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. Great to have all of you. So, Jim, um, we've all heard that call to Brad Raffensperger where Donald Trump asked him to find 11,780 more votes. And in Brad Raffensperger's book, he said that he believed that it was a threat. So what does Jack Smith, what more does Jack Smith want to know from Brad Raffensperger today in this interview? Well, my sense is, is that you're, when you're seeing folks like Raffensperger and other public officials and then folks closer to the inner circle of Donald Trump being interviewed, that tells me that it's getting closer and closer to a conclusion in terms of the investigation. And they're wanting to confirm things that they've otherwise already, you know, They've already had testimony or evidence in the grand jury, and they're trying to confirm things that they've already seen with folks who had the firsthand knowledge, which is why they're probably talking to Raffensperger. Jen, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the things you want to do with something like this is set the table, right? You want to hear from Raffensperger, not just about what actually happened on that call, which, of course, you have recorded, but let's talk about the integrity of the, investi- in the, of the election in Georgia. You know, tell us how confident you are about the vote count and why there were no troubles in Georgia. And when you explain that to the president, what his reaction was, I mean, you need to kind of set all of that out as well so that, of course, you know in the end that the president did know that he lost the election. And when he's asking for those votes, it's not because he thinks he really deserves those votes, but it's an effort to overturn the legitimate election. John, what do you think happens next? Well, I think what we're seeing is a flurry of activity in a place where I think prior to this, the special counsel's momentum was really towards the documents in Mar-a-Lago. But now you're seeing Brad Raffensperg in there. You're seeing uh, sessions with uh, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, You see them, you know, looking to talk to Eastman. So they're trying to lock down everybody's story. The Giuliani one is particularly interesting because their focus was really the period from Election Day, uh, November 3rd to January 20th. What happened on what dates during that thing, uh, during that time period? Uh, What was the purpose of the alternate electors? What was the legal precedent for that? Did they actually have the evidence of the fraud? But Um, I spoke to two people who were familiar with that conversation who said um, it was 
uh, very cooperative, not acrimonious, um, fairly reflective of what the January 6th committee interview with Giuliani covered in terms of territory. So they are bringing form um, to this investigation. And Jen, you have other, you see other signs that suggest to you that uh, Giuliani's being cooperative. Well, the fact that he's there at all under a proffer agreement means he's being cooperative, right? They can subpoena him and drag him into the grand jury, but the fact that he's willing to interview in advance of that means he's being cooperative. I don't think that means he will be a cooperator with a cooperation agreement because I think there's just been too much craziness from him, too many false statements, too much nuttiness, substance abuse issues. I just don't think that they will sign him up as a cooperating witness and use him at trial. But that doesn't mean he's not useful to talk to now as they're still putting the rest of the pieces together. I also think there's a distinction there, which is, you know, he was asked, uh, from my understanding, about what did you do on this date? What was behind this particular move? When it came to questions about what did you say to Donald Trump, what did he say to you? Uh, that's where lawyer-client privilege came in and was invoked, and that's where it stood. So, Jim, there's already been two indictments. Donald Trump has already been indicted twice. Do you think there are others coming down the pike soon? Yeah, I think what they're looking at here is, you know, we already talked about the alternative electors. You know, they've, they're probably looking into perhaps the, uh, the, ch- the, the attempt to try to change over the attorney general, uh, the pressure that was placed on folks like Mike Pence and others. And what was going on in the state legislatures around the country as it relates to the electors, as we said before. And then you have the whole issue in Georgia, right? So you, you, you pull that all together and they're looking at some, perhaps some conspiracy to overturn the outcome of, overturn the outcome of an valid election, perhaps defrauding the United States government. They're looking at all these issues to try to build a case and build eventually towards an indictment. And I think as they're getting to the, to the end here, when you're hearing, when you're seeing folks like Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and others going in and testifying, I think that's where you know we see this coming to a conclusion. I do think that this case, in particular, and I don't think you'll see an incitement type case here because the First Amendment issues associated with it. I think it'll focus more on the election issues and trying to overturn the outcome of the election. But I, I think you are going to see, you know. Uh, so I, I think you are going to see, you know, the, the facts surrounding January 6th coming into play, but not in the sense of incitement, but more of pressure to, you know, push this narrative. Do you agree, Jen? I do agree. I do agree. I mean, this conspiracy has a lot of strands, as Jim was just saying. I don't think they'll even touch this issue of incitement on that day. They've got plenty with the fake electors, the pressure on the state election officials, the pressure on the state legislatures, you know, all of that. Uh, They've got more than enough to do that, maybe in one big uh, Klein conspiracy, it's called, as as Jim was just saying. Jim, you worked, obviously, in the Trump White House. So let's talk about Rudy Giuliani for a second. What kind of behind-the-scenes info do you think that he can offer to the special counsel? I see Rudy Giuliani didn't work in the White House. He was an advisor to the president, was a lawyer to the president, a private lawyer to the president. Um, so, I, I mean, he probably knows a lot more than most as it relates to this matter. You know, he was going into court in Pennsylvania and other places and, and holding meetings in, the, in, in, in Pennsylvania and other places uh, where they were pushing forward with this idea that the election was stolen. So, I mean, he's probably got a lot of information. The question is, what's privileged? What's not? What can he talk about? What can he talk about? You know, those are the issues that were addressed earlier in the in the discussion. And, I, I, you know, I think they're, you know, it remains to be seen as to what really comes of, 
uh, Giuliani's testimony. I think that's that's a good assessment because we also have to, I mean, just going back to our discussion here last night uh, at this table, it was what did Rudy Giuliani say in public versus what did he represent in court? And part of the focus of this interview was that Rudy Giuliani was running the operation of trying to prove that the election was stolen, but when they made those representations in court, they weren't saying the same things that they were saying in the media. Um, so the idea that he did something legally to defraud the process, the only way to get to alternate electors is if a, if a body, which is a court or a legislative body, um, makes that move. And that hasn't happened since Nixon versus Kennedy in 1960 in, in Hawaii. And very quickly, wasn't it also Rudy Giuliani who said, let's have trial by combat? It was, but now... Isn't that incitement? Yeah, now you're up against these First Amendment issues again. Is it immediate enough? Is it calling for violence clearly enough? Is it seditious conspiracy? I mean, this is where it gets difficult. So I, I honestly think they won't touch that because, you know, they've got plenty of other stuff. Yeah, and just very quickly, Jen, the, the intersection between the Georgia-Fulton County investigation and Jack Smith's investigation, they were both going on, they are both going on concurrently. Who's going to go first? Yeah, so it's super unusual. You know, normally DOJ would try to stop the state from from doing this, but way back when, they kind of pulled back and let Georgia go ahead. So I don't know what's going to happen now. I'm sure that they're talking because Trump's stance card is getting very, very full as far as charges and don't trials. The DA. Yes, um, but the feds will want to go first because, of course, if Trump were to be elected again, that's the one that he can mess with. He can't really mess with Georgia in the same way. It does feel like a lot is coming to a head right now. Thank you all very much for the expertise. Okay, when we come back, Chris Christie calls Donald Trump childish and says he's the cheapest person he's ever met. He's the cheapest person I've ever met in my life. That's why. And, and, and what he's very good at, Caitlin, is spending other people's money. All right, more of what Christy just said on CNN. Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie appearing on CNN this evening and explaining what he hears on that exclusive audio tape obtained by CNN of Donald Trump discussing secret classified documents during that 2021 meeting at his golf club. He's the consummate show-off. And I think that's what that tape was, him showing off. People asked me, going all the way back to the time of the raid last year of Mar-a-Lago, like, why would he keep these documents? People were like, is he going to give them to a foreign government or sell them to somebody or blackmail people? I'm like, you don't understand Donald Trump. It's just to show off. He wants to continue to act like he's president. He can't live with the fact that he's not. And so that's why he kept those documents. It, it, it seems childish and stupid. And it is, but that's the reason why, in my view, he's always kept it. Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst John Avalon. John Miller is back. We're also joined by Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michelson and New York Republican surrogate Joe Pinion. Uh, great to have all of you. Okay, so, John, I think Christie's enjoying this unplugged moment yeah. that he's having right now. He's just speaking his mind about, particularly about Donald Trump. We'll get to what he says about DeSantis in a second. What do you think about what Christie's doing? And will it be effective in helping him move up in the polls? Look, I, I think authenticity is what voters respond to. And, and you clearly, the unplugged moment is, is him actually to be able to tell the truth. And the problem with so many Republicans right now is that they try to tiptoe around Donald Trump for fear of offending him or some part of the base. And when you're liberated from that to actually tell the truth from a position of knowledge, I think that has a compelling charisma around it. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons, you know, I think Christie should not 
not be written off as, as simply a candidate who's going to, you know, soften him up. I think the, the town hall the other day on CNN showed he reminded people that he's got uncommon political talents. Do you see that as a Republican, Joe? Look, I mean, this is a man that every major donor in the country begged to run for president in 2012. And I think if he had run for president in 2012, he would have won. So I I think the unfortunate reality uh, for Chris Christie is that it's very difficult uh, to try to impugn the integrity of President Trump without alienating the voters that still support him. And so it's uh, it's it has the unintended consequence of actually putting you behind the eight ball at a time when you're actually trying to go on the offensive, namely to win a primary. So I think that is what he is up against. I think the other part of it is we don't get to tell voters what to care about. That's politics 101. And part B of that is that we don't get to tell them to care about my issue for the reasons I want you to. So, yes, I think that you can talk about the real uh, problems and the tragedy of January 6th. You can talk about the issues that President Trump has in some ways brought on himself. But none of that actually gets to the compelling interest of what most Republican primary voters want to talk about, namely the economy and a lot of the Here's my problem. Does that extend to the truth? I mean, you know, you could say you can't tell voters what to care about or not my issue, but isn't leadership required telling people the truth? Uh, to, be, to be clear, I don't think that you have a, a preponderance of people who are running for president in New York or around the country who are just outright lying to voters. I think they're focused on how they win the primary. So, yes, I think that if he... if, I think if that's if, a means to an end for some I, I Look, I, I think if you're going to sit here and say that, yes, Chris Christie has the cards of his convictions, uh, far be it for me to question that. I think well, he's an accomplished man. He's done many things. But if you're talking about raw politics, how do you win the primary? And more importantly, how do you beat President Trump? I don't know if the yeah. path that he's on is going to get it. Hold on, Jay, hold that thought for a second, because I want to also play what he just said about Ron DeSantis. So Ron DeSantis had a town hall, a student, I believe a high school student, asked him what his thoughts were on January 6th. And if Donald Trump tried to destroy democracy, that's basically paraphrasing what the student said. And Ron DeSantis said something to the effect of, um, well, I wasn't there that day. Uh, It's time to move on. I believe it's time to move on. Uh, I try not to think about what happened. And here's Chris Christie responding to that moment. He wasn't anywhere near Washington. Did he have a TV? Was he alive that day? Did he see what was going on? I mean, that's one of the most ridiculous answers I've heard. People were killed, Caitlin, as you know, that day on Capitol Hill defending the Capitol. Um, We had members of Congress who were running for their lives. We had people trying to hunt down the vice president of the United States, chanting, hang Mike Pence. And Donald Trump the entire time sat outside the Oval Office in that little dining room of his, eating a well-done cheeseburger and watching TV and doing nothing to stop what was going on until it got to the point where even he could no longer stand it. Jay. Yeah, you know, I'm perplexed by these responses. So I never thought in a million years that I would be saying that Chris Christie would be the voice for your moral reason and moral conscience in this moment. And yet he is in part that person, right? He is the one person who is speaking truth to power, showing that the emperor has no clothes. But in the clip, you can see he just can't seem to help himself like being the other Chris Christie, the one who's kind of a bully and says like mean insults, you know, the cheeseburger thing. And I just wonder, you know, maybe that plays with voters, but it feels to me like he has an Elaine here. That is, again, not one that I would expect, given Chris Christie's past with closing lanes to enter bridges, for example. (laughs) But that lane is being the voice of reason in the Republican Party. And there are a lot of Republicans, I think I'm sitting next to one, who 
would appreciate some truth and some reason from their candidates. The question is, as Joe says on this show pretty much every other week, it's a winner-take-all primary in the Republicans, and it's not clear that that point of view will be the one to prevail. But it may be that Chris Christie, I can't believe I'm saying this, may go down in history as one of the valuable voices of this year. Your thoughts, John? I think Chris Christie has a unique role, which is the thing that makes him different here, which is, you know, he's the one who entered a crowded field with a whip, a chair and a gun as the guy was going to keep Donald Trump cornered by making these statements. And he does it in the form and format of a former federal prosecutor who, you know, keeps coming back to the crimes, the violations, the legal analysis, as well as the political characterizations. And he's becoming formidable for being different in a field where Mike Pence struggles with no one's above the law, but he shouldn't go to jail, and Nikki Haley flip-flops Their numbers are higher. Their poll numbers at the moment today are higher than, than, uh, than Chris Christie's. Right, and we're very early, and people are just getting accustomed to someone speaking frank, frankly and truthfully. It's a, kind of a new concept in this conversation. <laughs> so we have to ha- see how it plays out. But uh, the key is he stands out. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I got to leave it there, Joe. Thank you all very much. We have some new video to show you of how a police officer responded when he realized an active shooter was loose in a shopping mall. That's next. Newly released video captures the moment a mass shooter opened fire at a shopping mall in Allen, Texas last month. It also captures the level of heroism it took for a sole police officer to chase the sound of gunshots through the parking lot until he found the shooter. Tonight, we see that officer's body cam footage for the first time. My panel is back with me. John, this is so one of the most remarkable things about this video we're about to show is what the officer was doing seconds before the shots ring out. He is doing community service, basically. He's teaching little kids about seatbelt safety. And so let me just play what happens next. Hey, make sure y'all be good, okay? And make sure you wear your seatbelts when mommy's driving, okay? You understand? Okay? Okay? All right. All right, you be good. Seatbelt? Wow. 145. I think we got shots fired at the outlet mall. They're moving further away from me. Okay, we're going to play more of that, but those are just the first moments. What did you see in that moment? I mean, what you see is what 90% of a police officer life is, which is playing Mr. Policeman. He's talking about safety with the kids. And it's a fascinating moment because when you looked at it, you hear bang, 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 bang. And while they're processing, that sounds like gunfire. What does mom do? She gathers up the kids and moves out. He gets the patrol rifle from the vehicle. This used to be the moment where you called SWAT. Now everybody has an AR-15 in their patrol car because that's, you know, the new world in one-man patrols out there. And what does he do? He literally starts running towards the gunfire. And he needs it because that's, he doesn't know where it is. He's following the sound. Yeah, so let's show that. So he's following the sound of gunfire. He's alone. He's trying to call for backup. And how much... Well, let's watch this. Okay, so this is just him running. And 
He's running all around the mall, okay? And he has gear on. Oh, this is not, it's not easy to run during all of this, right? Like, he has heavy gear on. Right. And he is yelling at people to get away. He is talking on the radio simultaneously, saying, this is where I'm passing, so, you know, the units know where to respond. He's already called it in when the mom and the child were running away. Shots fired at the outlet mall. Um, He's doing a lot at once while trying to follow the sound of the gunfire and maintain breath control because he knows he's likely going to have to engage this person. Let's hear what happens. So when he sees, then at some point from a distance, he sees the gunman. So let's just listen to that. I mean, that's just, it was from a, a long distance. He sees him. He shoots him. He's all alone. I mean, he had to do all of this in split seconds. Uh, I know that might not, you might not be marveling at the way that we all are, but what, how police officers' lives can turn on a dime like that. Well, and it's interesting because if you take it in the context of what we just saw, what does he know? He knows he's going against a heavily armed assailant. How does he know that? Simply by the number of shots he's heard, he knows this person has a giant supply of ammunition and probably a long gun by the sound of it. He's running towards that danger. He's trying to clear people away update the department on the radio. And then, you know, as he stops hearing the gunfire and it goes quiet, every corner he comes around, he's saying, am I running into an ambush? So I think that's just such a remarkable video. And we saw that. We saw it in Nashville at the school. We saw it at Louisville in the bank. And we've seen the flip side. I mean, if you take this week, Allison, what are we going through? You've got three officers in Texas who opened fire far too quickly on a woman who was charging at them with a hammer. Um, They're charged with murder now. You have Scott Peterson in in Florida, in Parkland, on, on trial literally for not doing what we saw here. It underscores that being a police officer is complicated under pressure, being driven by fear, trying to control that and make sensible decisions. And so, John, uh, the backstory, I mean, or more to flesh out the story, eight people died. So that that shooter, that that active shooter killed eight people who were just shopping on any given day at a mall in America. And that police officer killed him. Yes. And it was obviously entirely justified. But I think what 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 John Miller is saying is that that video reminds us of the essential heroism of cops from being a role model to kids to the, 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 the their video cameras showing him running towards the danger. Literally the in the same moment. Right, in the same moment. I mean, that's how he has to flip the switch in we, his own mind that. like that. Absolutely. Um, gentlemen? We just need fewer of these incidents. You know, this, I mean, I, was, I got the chills watching this video. This is about the third or fourth time I've watched it preparing for this segment. And it is truly what heroism is. And we as a society have to do better so that people, individuals, police officers don't have to put themselves in this kind of, of harm's way. Yeah, quickly. I think you juxtapose that with what happened in Uvalde. And certainly mm-hmm. we recognize the need for people who raise their hand to be able to act when called upon. 
And so we've gone from a world where police officers should go their entire career and not ever have to brandish their weapon uh, to incidents like this. And so we should be doing everything humanly possible uh, to curb uh, these occurrences, but also at the same time remembering the reverence that we should have for the overwhelming majority of people that put that uniform on each and every day, not knowing if they're ever going to see their loved ones again. Thank you all very much. Okay, now to this. Madonna postponing her world tour after an infection lands her in the ICU. We're going to give you the latest details on her condition next. Pop legend Madonna dealing with a major health scare. Her manager says in a statement that on Saturday, quote, Madonna developed a serious bacterial infection, which led to a several-day stay in the ICU. Her health is improving. However, she is still under medical care. A full recovery is expected, end quote. Madonna is 64 years old. This infection has forced her to postpone her latest tour, which was set to kick off next month. Let's get the latest now with CNN correspondent Omar Jimenez and Dr. Debbie Nampia Parampal, an associate professor of rehab medicine at NYU School of Medicine. Okay, Omar, what do we know at this hour? So for for starters, a source is telling CNN that she is out of the ICU, which is good. But according to her manager, she was in the ICU for days, which of course indicates how serious uh, this was, what they were dealing with. But also he mentioned, or he said, as you said, that this was a bacterial infection, a very serious one that she was dealing with. And we know it's serious because she is someone who is almost notorious for battling through ailments that she that she's had physically. And so the fact that she is now essentially out of service, that we don't know how things are going to move forward, I think in its own indicates how severe this actually is, even if we don't have it verbally at this point. Dr. Debbie, what kind of bacterial infection lands somebody in the ICU for days? Well, any any bacterial infection can. So it could start out any place. You know, you could get a scrape on the skin. You could have a purposeful cut, like if someone has surgery and then it becomes infected like a wound. Sometimes at that age, it could be a urinary tract infection, for example, or let's say even an elective procedure like a colonoscopy. Um, but the main thing is usually that it has to spread to the blood because in order to end up in the ICU, it has to be something that's interfering with your ability to get oxygen and nutrients to the brain and to the organs because they have to be in danger of failing. So your heart has to be having problems actually getting those things to the brain and the organs. We have heard that she had a hip replacement in 2020. So does that um, lend itself to bacterial infections? Exactly. It can become like a nest or a nidus for infection. So the problem is it may not be that the hip prosthesis is infected. That may not be the source of the infection. But if someone is infected, let's say she has something called sepsis, which is bacteria in the blood. If she has sepsis, it can always be uh, a source of bacterial infection in the future. So sometimes what people will do is they'll remove the hardware and then the person has to go back after a course of antibiotics for weeks and then have a new hip put where that hip replacement was. So we don't know for sure. I'm not treating her, but it definitely complicates the whole process. Why does she have to postpone her tour? If it wasn't happening until next month, is the thinking that she won't be well by then? 
Well, I, I think that's that's the clear part in the unclear right now, which is his manager or her manager has said that they are trying to work out when this new tour would start. And this is a tour that, I mean, we're talking 80 shows, at least 40 cities across North America, Europe, so many different places, a huge tour uh, for anybody and especially someone who's 64 years old. So the fact that I think they don't have a definite time period for when she can restart is indicative of where we are. But also, as we mentioned, you know, she's battled through a lot of these types of injuries in, in the past, or not these types, but injuries in general. Back in late 2019, early 2020, she had to postpone or cancel certain shows of her Madame X tour because she said she was going through more pain than she had ever gone through in her life. And then a year later, she reveals she had hip replacement surgery because of overwhelming pain. And so she... She said at the time that uh, not only has she said she's a bionic woman, um, but also that she says she doesn't believe in limitations, which I think will give us some insight to maybe how she mentally is trying to handle this latest episode. But obviously this bacterial infection, very different from what from the pain that she would have experienced in the past. Uh, does she have to be on IV antibiotics? Is that the solution? Most likely she's been on IV antibiotics in the ICU, and it depends. If this hip prosthesis is an issue, then she might have to continue with that. On the other hand, you know, it depends what actually landed her in the ICU. Uh, if it's a bacterial infection or if it's something else that complicated the bacterial infection, and that's what kept her in the ICU, so, so it may depend. Uh, but just to follow up on what you said, her positive attitude and her work ethic might be a real, prog- like a good prognostic factor here, because usually if you have a serious infection, it's where you start that predicts how you're going to end up afterwards, too. It's not just the infection. So if somebody is really in bad shape before they get this bacterial infection, it's hard for them to bounce back from that. But for somebody who's starting at such a high level, that actually is a really good sign for her in the future. On the other hand, the stress of the tour might have been maybe what predisposed her also to being maybe immunocompromised. Maybe her diet was off. You know, there could be other factors that complicated this. Well, she is bionic, so um, and her manager says she's expected to have a full recovery, and we certainly hope so. Uh, Dr. Debbie Omar, thank you very much thank for you. all of that. Okay, the Supreme Court's biggest decisions are expected this week, including one on affirmative action. John Avalon has our reality check for us about whether affirmative action works. That's nice. Just two days left in the Supreme Court's term and some major decisions still expected to come down on President Biden's student loan program, on whether businesses can deny services to LGBTQ customers, and on affirmative action, specifically whether colleges and universities can use race as a factor in admissions. If the justices rule against that practice, colleges and universities would no longer be able to take race into consideration. Let's get over to CNN's John Avalon for a reality check. John. That's right, Allie. Look, in the next two days, Americans can expect a much-anticipated decision from the Supreme Court about affirmative action, specifically the role of race in university admissions. Now, affirmative action, as we know, it started with presidential executive orders in the 1960s, but universities really began embracing it in the wake of MLK's assassination. For example, in the fall of 1969, according to the New York Times, Harvard increased the number of African-American freshmen from 51 the previous year to 90 in a class of 1,200. Other colleges started to move in the same direction. And according to data from the National Center for Education Statistics, diversity in college enrollment increased each decade between 1980 and 2020. Now, of course, American society has grown more diverse as well. 
White students, for example, made up around 83% of undergraduates in 1980, but only 54% in 2020. Numbers. Is it fair to say that affirmative action worked? I mean, what do the polls say? So there's a paradox here, right? A brand new Monmouth poll found that a majority of Americans believe that racial and ethnic discrimination is a major cause of our political divisions. But a Washington Post poll last year also shows broad majorities of Americans say they favor leaving race out of college admissions. That was reaffirmed by a Pew Research Center survey earlier this month, which found that not even a majority of black Americans support affirmative action at 47%, followed by 39% of Hispanic respondents, 37% of Asian respondents, and 29% of white folks. Now, perhaps most surprising is that 35% of black Americans and 20% of Hispanics say they've actually been disadvantaged by efforts to increase diversity, with 28% of black Americans surveyed saying that people assume they might have benefited unfairly. In fact, get this, the biggest divisions on affirmative action are partisan, and white Democrats support affirmative action at a higher rate than black Democrats, 59 to 50%. They're about equal on disapproval. Look, a poll is just a snapshot in time. While race has always been a fundamental fault line in American politics, thanks to the legacy of America's original sin of slavery. We've got a long way to go before we achieve a genuine multiracial democracy. Now, if the Supreme Court does overturn considering race and admissions, we can't know exactly what the impact will be. But an analysis of medical school enrollment trends found that the number of students from underrepresented racial and ethnic groups fell by around a third just five years after some states banned affirmative action programs. Now, if the Supreme Court chooses a mended, not ended path by moving from racial distinctions to class, giving students from lower income families a boost in college admissions, it might have some of the net, same net effect, benefiting economically disadvantaged kids across the demographic spectrum, poor whites as well as poor black Americans. That might be a way to constructively depolarize this debate, making more progress towards quality of opportunity and social mobility as we continue our constant work to form a more perfect union. Then that's your reality check. John, thank you for all of that. Those are really interesting and probably unexpected numbers for a lot yeah. of people. So come back and join us. Um, Joe, what happens if affirmative action goes away on college campuses? Well, look, uh, I think a few things happen. I think, number one, we talked a little bit about this in the green room. This, we've already had a live experiment for what happens when the affirmative action goes away in California. Uh, they got rid of affirmative action uh, via the voter referendum in 1996. And the number of black students uh, We saw that, you know, the next year at UCLA, the most competitive school in California, uh, Af- enrollment for African-Americans and Hispanics went down about 40 percent. Uh, there was a professor from Princeton University uh, who actually tracked the long-term impact of that decision, and we found that over a 15 to 20-year period, long-term economic impact down about 5%. So we know in a vacuum, getting rid of affirmative action does have a negative impact. The issue is, and for me, I think perhaps the opportunity, is to say that is this the best way to make sure that we're actually achieving the equality that we set out uh, back in... And is it? I don't think that we are. I think that if we're looking constructively at why it is that we even still need the program, it's because school by school, state by state, city by city, we have public schools that are failing our children. We know this unequivocally. So whatever you think the remedy to that is could be and should be. I think that we spend so much time talking about how do we help these people catch up? We spend less time figuring out why is it they're behind in the first place? I'm glad that Joe's showing up for a robust Department of Education and federal funding of public schools. I'm, I'm all for that. That sounds great. <laughs> school choice, uh, my friend. School choice. clearly aligned on rescuing the public school system. So, look, I mean, I think John's introduction is very helpful. We should understand from a—so I've been writing on the Supreme Court for 15 years. Uh, this is 
almost certainly the result that affirmative action will be overturned. It's helpful to understand two things. First, that it is, an, it is Im, improper, according to, uh, to federal law, to discriminate on the basis of race. The question is whether there's a compelling state interest that justifies that. When we look at some of the numbers, the achievement gaps and so forth that were just mentioned, it's hard to argue that that's not a, com- a compelling state interest that justifies something that otherwise would not be justifiable. But it doesn't look like that's the cards for the Supreme Court. And I think one of the major reasons is that progressives in particular have muddied the waters uh, ethically about this issue. Americans care about fairness, right? It's a primary value. Affirmative action seems to offend the value of fairness. And progressives have done a terrible job of explaining that fairness is both individual and also collective. That it's not fair for everybody to just have a certain equal shake when, as Joe just said, some people haven't had an equal shake uh, for the first 15 to 18 years of their lives. But I really actually have to say I blame progressives and Democrats in particular for failing to explain why affirmative action is in line with primary core American values of fairness and equality. And so we have lost the moral debate as we are soon to lose uh, the judicial debate. Jen. So here's the legal issue. For 40 years, the Supreme Court has said that diversity is a compelling state interest, that because these schools, and a lot of these are private schools, want to compose their classes using diversity as one of their core values, that they are allowed to do that because that's a compelling state interest. For the court to now say, which I agree they are primed to do, that they are not going to allow that anymore, that requires them to not sort of nuance this, massage this, and say, oh, well, we said that and and this is a little bit different, but to actually overturn that, to say what we said more than once over the last 40 years, we no longer want to go with because we are an ideologically different court than existed back then. This is not so dissimilar from last year's Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. They're saying we're a different court. We feel differently about this issue. And so we're going to rule in the opposite direction. Do you think that's where they're going to go? Or do you think this will be? I mean, I feel like this will be a history has changed. And I wonder if this will be that bold of a statement tomorrow or if it'll be, well, the world has changed. And so now this remedy is. They may try based on that O'Connor statement, but it's so defied by the facts in this case. I don't think they can get away with it. Thank you all very much. Really interesting conversation. We shall see what happens in the next two days. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, Melinda French Gates on her push to get more women elected elected to office. Plus, Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC is live to celebrate 50 years of hip hop. That all starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching CNN tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.